This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I have the pleasure of having my friend from the private equity world, Chris Bradley, Mistral Equity, among other monikers. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Pete. It's great to be here and a beautiful view, beautiful day that you chose to do this on. Yeah, this, there might be some global warming going on, but we'll just enjoy it with a little bit of AC underneath it. So we're all good. Right on. So you and I have been talking about deals in the Halo sector and food and beverage for, uh, I'd say, a short 15 years-ish. Yeah. So um, so you've done a lot uh, in your career. You've, you've started with a group you know, that I think is really interesting and on the consumer side and kind of morphing into fitness and spa and other things, Halo. Why don't you give your background to everybody so they know that, you know, if they're an up-and-coming financier, that they could potentially be like Mr. Bradley. <laughs> Fire away. Well, rewind the tape since you had asked earlier for me to start way back in the beginning. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Not a place a lot of people have been to, but it's a wonderful place if you go. I remain a Cardinals fan. I went to a pretty normal high school, went to the University of Chicago after that, and all my friends were working in finance and uh, consulting in New York City. I said, okay, I'll go do that too. I went and joined PricewaterhouseCoopers as a strategy consultant. Did you know a lot about strategy at the time, or they trained no, you? I knew nothing. <laughs> Honestly, I knew nothing. I've, I felt I've, the same way now that I look back on it. It's, it's so crazy how you get all these smart kids going to jobs where, you know, you get paid in consulting an hourly rate by the client or investment banking, you're making millions of dollars per transaction. You literally have no idea what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got trained up super fast and you know how it is. Trial by fire, you, yep. you learn on the job and that all worked out great. And uh, IBM bought uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers Strategy Group and all my colleagues started to quit. So I said, okay, I should probably go do that too. And I went off to business school Went to Harvard. I know that's your alma mater. You who? Section C. I, I was sexy also. I didn't know that. Oh, see? Outstanding. We got, we what got year we, did you graduate? 2005. Okay. Yeah, I got a couple of years on you. Six, exactly. <laughs> not too All many, right. not too many. And then um, I did uh, what for me was a transformative internship. I thought to myself, huh, wouldn't it be fun to go work at a company? I'll go be... A in the strategy group on at the company side and tell the consultants what to do. Hmm. And so I went to go to Burger King, which is, you know, maybe the antithesis of Halo. This was this was during, uh, in between years. In between years. And That's I mentioned in this, Fort Lauderdale, no? Down in Miami. Down in Miami. Hot. Gosh. So hot. Oh good choice. God. Well, I got, I got shipped to Huntsville, Alabama for my uh, internship when I was in consulting, actually. I was at the Parthenon group. They shipped me to Huntsville, Alabama. And after that, I decided I'm not going to consulting because huh. I could be drop shipped anywhere. No, that and that is the, that <laughs> is the big risk. I mean, I just, I was traveling around in England and Providence and some of it's fun, but then it gets old. It gets old. Huntsville is, you know. So did you come up with like the, the Whopper and like extra fries or something? Or what, what kind of strategy were you deploying? I was, I was in charge of figuring out why people didn't like the French fries. What do you do with the fish sandwich? And I had my greatest professional accomplishment at Burger King. I will just mention it because to me, it is really, really fun. Um, people, when they get in the cars at the drive-thru, mm -hmm. love the smell of the Whopper. They love the smell of the fries. And some people will let the burger and the fries just sit there and just feel the anticipation and smell them as they drive along. And uh, in order to create, uh, you know, kind of heightened customer engagement, I, uh, it's not core to Burger King strategy, but it was fun. I created the Whopper Cologne. It was called no. Flame. 
And it launched uh, in like 2007. They had it at Ricky's here, a bunch of other kind of boutique huh. places. It was definitely uh, a thing for about a minute and a half. Wow. I did not know about that. It was a lot of fun. I know about keeping like the fries in the car for an extended period of time so you don't lose the smell. Yeah. I didn't think of turning into a clone though. <laughs> you know, all you could probably do is go to that, um, th- that, the largest air freshener, the one that does those uh, Christmas trees. Yeah. That's up yeah. in Watertown, New York. I know that because I was working on a deal back in the 90s. Fascinating. Yeah. So maybe you could go whopperize those. That, that was on the list of things to, to make, but Instead, I don't think they were playing ball. You just perfume it, huh? Yeah, they just love the smell. Hey, what, uh, by the way, what was in Huntsville? Are you allowed to say the name of the client? There was a, a company called J uh, J M Huber. It was a uh, a contract manufacturer of um, of electrical equipment, mm-hmm. and I got drop shipped there at age twenty seven for about two months. I lived across the street from the NASA Space Center there, and I would try and like take a run at like five a.m. the crack of dawn because like you couldn't do anything there otherwise. It was just like a yeah humidity pit um and I, but i used to go through and i got pulled over once and the guy's like hey boy what are you doing here and i'm like oh i'm in consulting he's like is that like insurance or something <laughs> i'm like no dude i'm like helping this company be better and they're like well can't they help themselves and i'm just like all right they didn't like my new york driver's license at the time clearly you teach a man to fish he was going for one of those yeah so you come up with these the perfume for the Whopper, which is radical. It was it was game changing. No one I'm else in you. private equity has done something that radical. I don't think it's it's fun when you create something. You know, I think that yeah. when pe- when you're in a professional services job, one of the things that you get envious on the other side of the fence is the self actualization that comes with creating something when you're at a company. So mm. people can create products or lines of business or service lines. As a private equity investor, it's a little bit of a different feeling, and you have to know that you like the feeling of making money on other people, right. which is, you know, and you obviously contribute and you help, but for the most part, you don't necessarily roll up your sleeves. So, so, so from a creativity standpoint, I would say private equity is relatively low on the chain. I, I, I tend, when I was back, um, when I was starting Integrity Square, I used to do these... Um, I don't know how many people have seen these and I prefer they don't look for them. But on YouTube, I have some like music videos that I did because it was like kind of like a weird Al Yankovic type of, type of thing. And we were, I could see you doing that. Yeah, I did that um, with some costumes and a mask, actually, uh, <laughs> because I didn't want people to, to equate me to Integrity Square at the time. Um, but I, 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 it was, I was looking for a creative outlet because I, I wasn't mm-hmm. able to do it. I was just like helping people fight over money and like mm-hmm. negotiating contracts. So, but you've taken it into Mistral where you, you are work, you were originally working with a lot of early stage companies. So it was almost like they had yes, some you, parts of the Whopper, but not the whole Whopper. Exactly. And it's funny, I'll finish off the story on the transition just very briefly, and then I'll get into what, um, what all that means day to day. Uh, at the time, Burger King was owned by Bain Capital, TPG Capital, Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. Capital, and I interacted with all these private equity guys and gals, and I said, wow, I really like your job. It seems multidisciplinary. I really like your watch. How do I get your job? And they were <laughs> like, kid, you don't know shit about finance. You need to go cut your teeth and invest in banking first. And I think that's a very traditional kind of advice that you get from people. Even management consultants who know a lot don't necessarily have that finance skill set. So I went to Bank of America Securities for a couple of years 
and I skilled up real fast. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, you, you know what that's like, obviously. So Yeah, sure. Well, now they have um, shut-off Saturdays. Do you know what that is? I've, I've heard about that. So, like, if you're an analyst or an associate, like, you can't log into your email because they want you to take the day off. I don't even know what that was like I, back in the day. A day off, right, exactly. Take a day off, man. I was working like 90 hours or 100 hours a week. Like we were doing comps by hand and like buying pizzas for the print center. Yeah. Get your documents quicker. I mean, back in the day, you be, I mean, you barely had, what, FactSet? Um, yeah, I think FactSet was just coming out, but it never populated properly, if I remember. <laughs> right, you always had to check the numbers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, things things are a lot different now, but still... I can't shut off Saturday. I mean, I guess people just work on their personal computers and pretend like I guess, like so they actually off. take the day off and, like, meditate or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. If you work for the square, I, I encourage it on the air, but not actually in real life. Right, okay. right. But so then um, uh, I transitioned from, you know, into an actual private equity job, and Mistral started as a, you know, it's a traditional kind of middle market buyout and growth shop. Mm-hmm. And what you, what I, I mean, I'm going to say something that's very obvious. What you saw over the years is kind of a commoditization of the leverage buyout skill set. Mm-hmm. It used to be that the math behind that and finding the deals to, you know, pile on debt, pay that down, just like one does with a mortgage, that used to be a thing that you could differentiate yourself on as a strategy, but no more. Mm-hmm. And the competition, the number of dollars flowing into that asset class was so large that people started to transition into growth investing because the growth investors could really produce some risk-adjusted returns that were very attractive to mm-hmm. limited partners. So started doing some growth investing at Mistral, and the more you do it, the more skills you build in helping teams and the better you get at identifying early-stage opportunities. Mm-hmm. And so it started to just kind of drift down in investment size over time still doing larger deals, of course, but also being comfortable with the smaller ones. So now we have a fund that does early stage. I mean, it's venture capital investing mm-hmm. um, for all intents and purposes. I do a lot of angel investing. Mm-hmm. Mistral still does growth and buyout. And then the fourth thing we're up to is these uh, giant deals called SPACs, which is, you know, when you would mention the spa business, we just bought a spa business in March that is currently trading at a billion too. I mean, these are, it's a very wide range. I'll put in $100,000 in one transaction and another one, 400 million. I mean, it's mm-hmm. all across the board. It's a lot of fun. Got it. So when you hit the Citibank account and you send that type of wire, do they at least call to say like, yo, bro, did you really mean 400 <laughs> or 400,000? <laughs> Where does the comma go? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, but so, so let's talk about growth equity investing just as like a, as a practice, because I, I, we've had some, some guys on here that just do leverage buyouts, middle market, kind of, you know, not take too much risk. When you, when you look at an early stage deal, maybe we can come up with, um, I don't know, let's say it's one of your uh, cosmetics companies or like a, a pet food brand. You know, what elements of it do you look at to say, okay, this is far enough along where I'm not taking, you know, venture capital risk. And I kind of know that this team is at like this level. And by the way, you know, I know like the five most important things that this company needs to do. And I've done it 10 times before. And that's kind of why you should you should partner with us and not go it alone. Mm-hmm. Those are great questions. I think. Thank you very much. So I'm doing a podcast. Exactly. Right, no problem. Let's see if I have if they have the answers. Yeah. Question one to five. Thanks. <laughs> there's um, 
I'm going to break it down into wholesalers and unit level businesses because the, the general assessments for each of those is different, but within those categories, they're the same. For the wholesalers and across both of them, you're looking for, and this is not going to necessarily be a genius level comment, but at least it's worth saying, in an ideal world, achieving something that is relevant to people's lives. So what does that mean to me? It means like what people want generally is they want to belong, they want to be in control, mm-hmm. they want to be acknowledged, and they want to be their best selves. And if you can check those boxes somehow and have something that looks good and is sexy and is at the right price point, you're going to have something that is sustainably sustainably interesting over time. Mm -hmm. So for a wholesaler, metrics-wise, like you look for all those brand attributes, but metrics-wise, you're looking for high velocity on the retail shelf. And if you're a direct-to-consumer business, obviously repeat purchasing because that's something that you can actually measure. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you're like, you know, selling something to Whole Foods or Costco or whatever, you don't necessarily have the data to know whether or not an individual consumer is repurchasing, but you'll know whether or not a store is repurchasing. Right, right. So you look for high velocity but low retail penetration. And what that means is that my growth dollars can fuel marketing and get that product on more shelves and get the word out. And that is the recipe for success. Now, the rest of it, obviously, execution, mm-hmm. because you can't just you know spend a dollar willy-nilly. You got to make sure you know how to spend it and what the right ROI metrics to measure are. So, you know, but in any event, I look for that in categories, of course, that are growing in X, Y, and Z. For the retail, for the unit level economics, and I'll put fitness spas, dental practices, vets, you know, really anything, restaurants, anything where there's a unit, I look for a two to three year payback maximum. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because you can see in year three, you're going to have essentially, because the inverse of that is a 30%-ish cash on cash return, which is reflective of the returns that an investor in the asset class would require to put their money at risk. So let's let's just take people through what that means. So if I'm going to build a, let's say I'm building a, a plank fitness, and I put down a million five, then let's say in year one I make five hundred thousand, year two I make seven fifty, year three I make seven fifty of of what we call EBITDA. So that would that would be under that would be like a two and a half year payback. So that would kind of fit your one hundred percent bill. Okay. 100%. So and people understand the return on invested capital is I'm actually getting, I'm returning all of my invested capital in that two, and a, two to three year period of time. That's right. And, oh. and, and that, that essentially means that, hey, this is a good, good bet. And the, one of the beautiful things about, and people really don't like unit economics these days because they're like, oh, everything's on Amazonable and you're competing for customer traffic and X, Y, and Z. I'm a big believer in the experience economy. And if you can provide somebody with a feeling that they can't get somewhere else, obviously, if it's a product, yeah, you're going to have that risk. But in that example of a Blink Fitness, people are going to go work out. Obviously, it's a girl. I mean, people are, we're here talking about Halo. Like, this is an right. obvious thing to, I think, the audience listening. So I think that um, the beautiful thing about retail, you can just punch out more boxes. Right. And so long as you know where to locate them and you've got an operations team 
that knows how to train and knows how to make sure the customer service is there, you are going to be successful. Mm -hmm. So o over time, you've, you've looked at probably hundreds of different products and hundreds of different brands. And I'm sure, as we see, you know, somebody will come in and say, um, like, if Uber is like the hot thing, we'll be like, we're the Uber of pet care. We're the Uber of whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Or like someone will say, you know, uh, back in the day, like, all right, I'm, the, I'm like the new improved balance bar or I'm like the new improved Neutrogena or whatever it is. Like, how do you... How do you assess internally or on your own or as an investment community to be like, does the world need this? Like, what, what, what right does this entrepreneur have in like building this brand? And is there any DNA to this brand or is this mm -hmm. just like a copycat thing? And I'm not going to be like the schmuck that invests in like the copycat that has nothing to it. I mean, that is, you've hit your, the nail on the head of like, wow, that is the hardest question to answer because mm -hmm. the barriers to entry, certainly in consumer products, are near zero. Right. And the barriers to entry in retail are getting to be near zero. Mm -hmm. One of the things that at least in retail you've got is a physical location that nobody else can have because you've got that address. And the real answer is that if you have, and for the retail, if you've got a box that works, we were talking about the economics, mm -hmm. then, and the addressable market, and you, you know, you, you kind of have to use your gut on like, okay, is this the right price point? Like for example, there's a, there's a fitness concept that it was presented to me just the other day. They do very high unit level economics. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the, they're very profitable. And yet you, you can't see a world where they can move into the middle markets. So they're really going to be isolated into the coasts, mm -hmm. maybe Chicago, Dallas. But other than that, there's, they're really, and so I wouldn't invest in that concept because I'm the steward of professional money. If it were my own money, I'd be okay with that because that's a good personal investment, but there's mm -hmm. not really going to be an exit for that particular. So in any event, the, the long-winded answer to that question of how do you know is by looking at how well has it done and is the brand truly differentiated? And the only way to assess that is by um, looking at social media, asking around. In the best case, if we're putting in enough money and we can afford the diligence cost, you do a consumer survey mm -hmm. and you can benchmark the feelings that people have for these brands against others. One of the ways people do this not necessarily the most scientifically, but at least it's still popular is the net promoter score, which is how likely is somebody to recommend a product or service. And if they're willing to recommend it, then, hey, you know, sort of like American Express's net promoter score is something like 82 and Apple is like 78. So if you can jump over those, then you're doing really, really well. Gotcha. So when you've had a successful run in a successful exit on a, on a product or a company, do you then proactively say, hey, let me go find like the same product in like the pet industry or same product in the dental? Like how, do, how, does, the, how does investing and maybe, maybe successes and failures kind of like guide you or like you, you're not at a point, I know you're not the type of guy who just like waits for a book to come in. <laughs> like those days are kind of over. They are over. I'll, the best example. Although I just did send you a book last week, so please, I encourage I you to read. I always say yes. I always say yes. Okay, thank from you. you, Pete, they're different. All right, the, yeah, differentiated uh, PDFs. Thank you. That's Integrity right. Square's logo now. The future of PDF. All right, go ahead. The um, <laughs> the best example I can give of that is in 2010. I had found a business that 
had, I think, probably 10 locations. It was doing like 10 million of revenues, and it was a furniture company. Okay. Um, that's not a category that anybody really was excited about or is, I mean, furniture is one of the most boring categories around. However, they had a product that could be sold on the internet. It's a modular sofa. And this was in a time when there really, there wasn't even a term direct to consumer yet. Certainly not a term that anybody talked about. You could sell stuff on the internet, but nobody had that term. And, um, I got behind that particular product, um, and retail strategy, my firm put in, I think, $6 million in 2010. We grew that to 34. And the business, you know, uh, gosh, I think last year did $150 million revenues and went public. And it's now trading on the NASDAQ under the tickler Love. And oh, yeah, I've seen those. It is, uh, you know, the fastest growing furniture store in America. Mm-hmm. And it continues to kick ass because we identified that trend early. Mm-hmm. Now... That very positive direct-to-consumer experience inspired me to go invest in a couple other direct-to-consumer businesses. So I invested in an, um, a men's basics brand called Mac Weldon. They sell T-shirts, underwear, some you know sportswear type stuff. And I invested in that when it had $500,000 in revenues. It is now kicking ass. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, I think that particular, so that's a good example of yes. I mean, had a great experience in 2010, made that Mack Weldon investment in 2011, 2012. And at this point, I'm not looking at direct consumer anymore, really, because there's so much saturation. Like, everybody has figured that out at this point. Gotcha. Okay. And so I'm moving on to the next, what is it that I'm interested in? And for me, that's all about... Um, Do you want me to bleep this out so people don't get there first? No, it's okay. It's like right. Distribution's it's relatively limited right now, so I don't think it's going <laughs> to evoke any like mass competition. It's, a, it's about uh, mental and spiritual well-being. Mm-hmm. So as an example, I've put some money into a business. Um, it's flying way under the radar, and I won't even bother saying the name. That's an on-demand mental health clinic, so a kind of city MD for therapy. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, there's online versions of that, which I think kind of falls short of what customers are looking for. Yeah. But, um, you know, this one, I think, uh, this one, I think will be a good one. I was thinking maybe to infuse like mental health, like short bursts of uh, mental health um, therapy in high end health clubs mm-hmm. where it would be like kind of confession. We call it shower, ca- shower curtain confessions. Mm-hmm. And as you're taking a shower, you can just talk to someone and like, they won't be able to see you. Pete, are you They'll trying just to meet in the shower? Is that how that's going to work? No, no. These are all individual <laughs> uh, showers, but good point. Thanks for keeping me you know, on track since I just got engaged. Um, oh, muscle. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that, that there's there's going to be a lot of experimentation on that side of the business. It's going to be a question of whether, you know, somebody on an app or a 1-800 number is going to suffice. I think you really need to talk. If you, if you have a problem, you need to actually talk to someone face-to-face would be yes. probably the most direct way to solve a potential problem. And, and the, you know, I mean, there's nothing that's going to replace the energy that people feel when they're together. Right. I, I'm a firm believer in that. And obviously, you know, there's nothing wrong with the online solutions because, hey, when somebody's in a dire need, like, that's something you should explore. Mm-hmm. Better that than nothing. Do you think that a mental health um, clinic, what, should, there be, should it say that on the door? Or should it just say, like, uh, like happy place? And then, it, like, people don't really know what it is unless you need to know. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, so it's interesting. This one... 
uh, it has the word health in it, okay? Yeah. Because the belief is that you're, you're, you can transition that brand into a number of different categories. And Got so it. if you're thinking about what do you want to be for the future, it's not just this walk-in mental health clinic. And, um, and it's kind of, I mean, when I think about what Halo means, it's, um, it's, it's, it's exactly about it. people are trying to be their best selves and this is just sure. one way to go about it. Well, I used to, I mean, growing up, you know, we're about the same age. So growing up, like therapy was like a bad word. Yeah. You know, and in our family, there was one, one cousin that went to therapy and, you know, he was like, quote unquote, crazy. Yeah, right? crazy so, one. Right. Yeah. So I like, I never like thought that therapy was like an option because I'm not like that guy. <laughs> uh, you know, although he's very entertaining, great to hang out with, but you just, you didn't want to be like psychologically like him. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the world has made pretty significant strides over the last like five years that mental health is now kind of like exercise for your brain, just like a fitness center is. That's right. So I definitely got more comfortable with that, but I did have a scar on, um, on the, the view of it. 100%. You know, I think um, I mean, it's helped when people talk about their experiences with it. I think when you, I mean, I mean, do you remember the, the, the movies when we were growing up, you, pe people would, they kind of, uh, have the, you know, a movie set in LA and everybody was getting, uh, going to therapy and going, getting vegetarian food and what movies is this? I just have like movies in general. Oh, they yeah. were like, just feel, feel like they help popularize the concept. Now right, everybody, right, right. everybody talks about it. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough when I go on, going a little deep for a second here. Like you live in a free world, you know, people can argue whether, you know, you're free or not or what politicians say and this and that, but you know, like you have air conditioning, you have home, you have, a f you know, food anywhere around the city. Like, you know, what are you depressed about or what are you upset about? It's like, mm -hmm. I guess every society has their own, you know, what's norm and how should I feel? And then it's like, my, my response is, if you go, as an example, like let's say there's a 10-year-old kid who goes from one school district to another school district because their parents moved and they're like depressed for a week. Like, I don't know if that should require that kid to go to therapy. Like, it's like, okay, you're going into a new environment. You're not supposed to make friends, you know, within two hours of getting there. Like, it's part of life <laughs> of like... Get it, yes. like go put yourself in some boiling water and like figure out how to get out, you know, or figure out how to make it, you know, lower the, the temperature. And so I feel like it could go to an extreme, but I don't, mm -hmm. I also want to make sure people go to the gym first and say, okay, how do you feel now? You know, cut alcohol out of your, you know, life or cut, you know, or sleep more and or do some meditation and then figure out like, okay, what state are you in and what creates problems or what doesn't? And then places like this could be like an interesting, you know, walk in to say, hey, I got like something happened that I'm not, I don't know how to deal with. Well, that's exactly it. It's acute. It's for acute pain where. Got it. Okay. Not everybody. I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, <laughs> I guess the analogy be with like the fat person who wants to go to the gym immediately. Like you have a breakup, you get fired, somebody dies on you. You learn you have an illness. Like these are extreme life circumstances finding a therapist takes a long time. Right. And like asking your friends for a recommendation is one way to go about it. You're flipping through pages on the internet. Like it takes a long time, but yeah, in the meantime, you're feeling pain. So you invested in that. Yeah. Yeah. You and we're, uh, you know, got a cup, got a couple locations only, but okay. Doing, doing a okay. Excellent.
Um, so I, th- I think that covers some of the parts that I wanted to talk about. So as you look at, uh, let's talk about these SPACs for a minute that you brought up. So special purpose acquisition corporation. And this is when typically the market's pretty hot on the, the public equities. For our listeners here, a number of private equity firms or hedge funds set up these pools of capital to basically go out and find a company to buy and, and make basically a flash IPO. So talk about why Mistral is has the ability to do that, whereas obviously not many people are able to put these yep. together. What yep. kind of credibility you have, yep, and um, and how how that market works, you know, and like at a summary. Sounds good. Now to put this in perspective. The fund, the Mistral Equity Partners Fund, is two hundred eighty-seven million. Probably got 11, 12 investments in that. Okay. The SPAC that we finished up in March is $330 million and you can only buy one business. So that's a very stark contrast as to how these things work differently. The mo- most recent SPAC we've got is $400 million. And again, we got to go find one business. And like you were saying, you buy that business and it instantaneously becomes a public company just like as if it did an IPO on its own. Now, the reason why I think these things are more popular now, one of which is, like you were saying, when markets are hot, SPACs are hot, and it's because there's not a lot of um, opportunities available for the public market investor to make money. They're looking for opportunities of information asymmetry or a way to call the future in a way that others can't. And those don't exist when everybody kind of knows what's going on and asset prices have been bid up. But in a SPAC, you've got an example where... SPAC announces a deal, kind of nobody knows what's going on, and they have to figure it out, and then they vote yes or no on it. And that creates an opportunity because there's a dislocation for a brief period of time where the public markets are like, wait, wait, is this good? Is this bad? And if it's an actually good deal, then the smart money is able to make money. And in our particular case, um, we are backers of ideas. So we have been blessed with you know a couple good public companies before. And so as a firm, the public market investors see the Mistral name, they see my name, they see my colleague's name, and they say, mm-hmm. oh, you know, these guys have made money for us before, so we'll listen to them. So that's one reason why we're able to go raise the money. And then they know that we will do our darndest to find something that will trade well and is a good company and will grow and has reasons to exist. Mm-hmm. And not just try to make money on financial engineering, which can still happen in the public markets, just like people try to make money in LBOs. But I think the bigger reason why we were able to pull this off is that we are aligned with an operating guy. Financial people backing a SPAC, eh, they kind of have a mixed track record, but when you combine them with operating people, that um, that combination, that's those you know, kind of, full skill set is mm-hmm. really powerful. So the guy that we're doing this with used to be the CEO of Starwood. He was the CEO of Coke. He was the CEO of Turner. He ran on Uber Rubicon. He's on the board of Lazard. He is an absolute phenom of a guy. And, um, and uh, I learned a lot from him. And when you walk into a room with a guy like that, not just management teams that we're meeting with will take us seriously, but when you go to the public market investor and say, hey, I found a deal... And by the way, this guy who was running a couple of Fortune 500 companies thinks so too. Mm-hmm. And does that guy become the CEO or that woman become the CEO or like chairman of the board? Or 
maybe chairman, maybe not. He just wants to help out and do good deals. Gotcha. And okay. the public, like, he's not trying to take anybody's job. Got it. Got it. So, um, from a standpoint of if I'm a if I've got a company and it's it's worth I think it's worth I don't know let's use your term 850 million which mm-hmm. I don't so don't try and solicit me <laughs> if I did hypothetically what, why would I do a SPAC and not just try to IPO myself the best SPAC candidates are businesses that are held by a party that wants maximum liquidity and a business for which there's no natural st- strategic acquirer. Okay. So uh, the parties that want maximum liquidity tend to be private equity firms. When they go do an IPO, you can only get maybe 20 or 30% of the value of your stake off the table, and then you're stuck with a concentrated position that you have to exit over time, which not only creates market risk, it creates an overhang on the stock whereby the public won't bid it up past a certain point because they think you're going to dump. So, right, so after six months, typically there's a the lockup period ends, and then on that next day everyone's racing to sell their stock which would which would tank the the stock right and as much as you think people have figured out that they shouldn't do that people still do that sure sure so if i'm a so if i'm a private equity firm i've owned a company for x number of years uh i could run an auction and try and sell it to another private equity firm but you're saying there might be opportunities to to make more through a get a public equity multiple for it. That's basically it. So the, the, the why not an IPO is maximum proceeds. The why not an auction is because the public market's cost of capital is lower than the private market's cost of capital, which is another way of saying there is a difference between the valuations between a private and public company. Mm-hmm. Not every public company, not every private company makes good public companies. Some of them just don't grow well or have mm-hmm. strange market dynamics that the public markets aren't going to accept. But uh, the ones where that doesn't exist, the public pays more. Got it. I mean, okay. I think uh, maybe the best example of that is this deal that we just did for one spa world, which is spas on cruise ships. Mm-hmm. It's Halo. It's a Halo it's business a Halo for business. sure. People are going on these ships and they are getting, obviously, you know, massages and they're looking pretty with beauty products, but they're also getting Botox, cool sculpting. I mean, they're trying to be as healthy as they can be. Mm-hmm. On these uh, on these ships and relax at the same time, but um, quite a uh, contrast from what what the Carnival Cruise <laughs> during spring break used to be, which I don't think they had any of those amenities. <laughs> they had a lot of chicken salad sandwiches and right, like shots right. of tequila. I guess they, that's moved they, on, thankfully. They still have that. Oh, they do. Okay. <laughs> so, so you don't need a key card for that. This you need a key card for. Then the um, the Catterton, who we bought this business from, uh, took this business private in 2015. They took a private at a multiple of like nine times EBITDA, and we bought it at a multiple of 15 times EBITDA. Now, there are many reasons why the business transitioned from the past to where it is now, but even that as a you know, private versus public market arbitrage kind of speaks for itself. Got it. So as you look to the, to the future here, you, know, you talked about mental health. Um, you talk about some of these, you know, br- the DNA of brands and what they can accomplish and how you can help them. Um, you know, where, where do you see the next phase of, of where you're going to be spending your time? Well, definitely for the up to at least two years, going to be very focused on these SPACs, that's for sure. Because, hey, we, we've got to we pull it off. The pressure is on and I want it to be a good deal and 
mm-hmm. all that stuff. And um, if you're an investor in our public stock, thank you very much for your support. And, um, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking to you soon. But for the, for the rest of my activities, it is 100% going to be on the sectors that you focus on, Pete. It's fitness. It's mental health. It's health generally. Uh, we were talking at the break briefly about how I'm super excited about the fertility industry. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, think, th- thing, things that help people, I and mean, I keep saying it, but I really do think it's true, help people be their best selves. Everybody's got enough stuff. And you hear the trends about millennials moving from stuff to experiences. I think it's a reflection of, honestly, like it's a, it's a beautiful time that we live in that you can have the luxury of self-actualization and things that help people feel that are, I think, going to be the winners. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things that um, your colleagues or, or friends would say like, oh, that's like a Bradley quote or like that's, that's <laughs> he would say that. So we'll, we'll end on a couple of good quotes because I'm sure you have some. The, the, I'd say that the, the two things that I will say the most as analogies, mm-hmm. boil the frog, which is not something people really talk about out here, but I grew up in Missouri where you got frogs, so you know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what that phrase means? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Not everybody yeah. does. So turn it up, right? Turn it up slowly. If you if you throw a frog into hot water, it jumps out. You put a frog in cold water and then turn up the heat slowly, it dies. Right. And so, you know, there's a good way of making sure, like I use that as a metaphor for don't get used to anything. You've got to disrupt yourself, mm-hmm. but you know that. And uh, the second thing I love to say, cut the Gordian knot. That's just like something I say. Do you know that story? Uh, no, but go into it. Okay. Once upon a time, Alexander the Great, was uh, traveling across Asia and mm-hmm. met this king. King had a daughter he was going to marry off. said, okay, I'm going to tie this real complicated knot. If you can untie this knot, then you can marry my daughter and get my kingdom. All these people, and by the way, if you don't untie the knot, I'm going to kill you. So, like, you know, it's one of those stories. So <laughs> all these people go up, they try to untie the knot. A lot of people are dying. Alexander the Great comes up and he says, aha, I know how to untie the knot. Takes out a sword, slices it in half. Thereby getting the kingdom, the daughter... And this nice phrase. And so for me, that's an expression that means like, just stop overcomplicating things. Just cut the Gordian knot. Yeah. Cut the Gordian, Gordian knot. Gordian. Yeah. I think it's King Gordius. King Gordius. All right. We'll fact check that (laughs) and and cut the knot. So it sounds like in this new world and this, you know, lack of competitive advantage and, you know, what's the moat? You know, maybe there is no moat around your business. It's really like if you see an opportunity, like go after it and don't strategize too much. Like we talked about before, we don't need a PowerPoint. We need some Whopper perfume. I agree. So thanks for being on the show and to everyone feeling, smelling and being their best self. Chris Bradley, good to have you on. You're the best. Thanks, bro.